Hello and welcome to Roundtable number six of Dualist Unity. I don't really know what I am, but I think that's okay. And I'm going to go by Andrew today. Nice. And I will call myself an energetic contraction that just happens to have the wherewithal to call itself Ray. Why not? And today we are joined by two special guests. It is roundtable number six. This conversation is going to be amazing. I've been looking forward to it for weeks. So the guests today are Susan Hannon and of course my wife, Melissa Davies. And Melissa has never been onto Dualistic Unity or any of the group chats as yet, though of course she has been a longtime um, adventurer with me on my own path. She has gone through so many different lessons that I know what she has to say is going to be very interesting, and I know everybody's been waiting a long time to hear from it. So rather than sh show any favoritism, of course, we're going to start with Susan and get Susan to tell us a little bit about herself, what she does, and what brought her to Dualistic Unity, and a little bit about uh, what she's hoping to talk about today. Hi, Susan. Hi, thank you again so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Um, where to start? Uh, I can start with what I do for work, which is certainly not who I am, but I think that's just an easy place to start. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist in the state of Pennsylvania, so I have been working at a group private practice for a few years now. Prior to living in Pennsylvania, I worked at a couple of different veterans affairs or VA hospitals in, in numerous different states in the U.S., um, mostly because my main, I guess, clinical and research interest is in trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. So... Yeah, I see a handful of clients a week, and then I'm also an assistant professor of psychology at a small liberal arts college in Eastern Pennsylvania. So that's pretty much what I do for work. Um, what brought me to dualistic unity? That's a really good question, and I might give kind of a long-winded answer to that. So I have been on a, I guess, spiritual journey probably since, like really since 2016, um, when I had an experience that is just really hard to describe in words, like it just falls apart at language, but it was a very stressful experience in my life and also a time when I was like falling madly in love with someone, um, probably not in the most healthy way, but it was just a very turbulent time. And yeah, I just had this very like visceral experience and just knowing that everything is one, like just knowing that everything is connected. And that's really the best way that I can describe it with words. It was just this energy that was coursing through my body. And I've never felt at more peace in my life than in that moment. And that lasted like that high energetic feeling lasted for maybe a week or so. And there was lots of other stuff going on. So that was maybe the first like awakening, I guess you can call it. And then I unfortunately went back to sleep for a while. Um, it's interesting, maybe we can talk about this later, but after I had that experience, maybe a year or two later, I labeled it as a manic episode. I was like, oh, that was mania. Um, I guess I meet criteria for bipolar disorder. So I'm just gonna like stuff that away and not tell anyone about that. Um, yeah, so it's just interesting how I dismissed what was arguably one of the most like profound experiences of my life. Um, but then I had a very another very profound experience just this past December. My dad passed away very suddenly, and um, just these experiences of like oneness and mm, 
again, it's hard to describe with words, but it all came flooding back. And so I, I, I think I stumbled upon Andrew's TikTok at some point a few months ago, and he mentioned the podcast and I started listening and all of these things just started clicking in ways that had never clicked before. It's like the knowledge was there, but somehow you two just put it into such beautiful words that I was like, oh, fuck, like that's what that means. Um, and it really just uh, kind of woke me up again. So yeah, that's, I think that's how I found my way to you guys. And I'm, I'm so grateful I did. Uh, I think the other question was things that I'm hoping to talk about today. Uh, yeah, I mean, it really, I, I find it interesting how, like I said, I had this beautifully profound spiritual experience, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I wrote it off as mania. And I just wonder like how many people do that? And like, what exactly is mania? What is depression? What is all these things that, that we have labeled as disorders, pathological? Um, and, and I guess the harm that comes with identifying as that. That's amazing. I'm really going to enjoy this conversation. And it's something that I know does happen. I've met quite a few people over time who woke up we're not greeted with open arms by a world that's dependent on an opposite mentality. And as a result, thought something was wrong with them. Everybody was reinforcing that something was wrong with them because they were invalidating, invalidating what they were doing. And so they get diagnosed with psychosis or they get diagnosed with depression. And it's like, no, it's, they woke up in a nightmare. That's the problem. Now we have to deal with the nightmare, not, not go back to sleep and forget that it's happening. So this is going to be a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining us, Melissa. Uh, I'm not going to ask you necessarily questions about your life um, because I've been a part of it. So I'm going to pass this over to Andrew and allow him to ask questions. So that way I'm not involved. Yeah. I mean, to start off, I'm very excited to talk to both of you. I know Susan, you've been on group chats in the past and it's, it's been a joy to, to go back and forth, but yeah, Melissa, I'm very excited to, to talk to you just having so many interactions with Ray that I've had and, and knowing how long you two been together. And obviously I have met you in person when I was in Canada, but I'm very excited to, to talk with you a bit more. So similar to Susan, I would just love to hear a little bit about your, your background in terms of, you know, your professional career and how, what you, you know, I know you and Ray talk all the time, how that has influenced something like the career that you have have chosen and the impact that that has had which i'm sure you know we'll get into much deeper but would just love to hear an initial sort of background on that thanks where to begin um well before i started counseling i was working in well we lived in vernon and uh which is in bc in canada uh and it, just such a beautiful place i had um, a practice that i ran for about eight years and so I was doing uh, Reiki and I was teaching classes um, on, yeah, how to, how to uh, feel our energy, how to um, just feel that body awareness, uh, mindfulness, uh, meditation. And then uh, I also was a reflexologist. So, you know, two different modalities, but very similar in terms of, um, again, the somatic or body awareness and um, meditation. Um, and I was just amazed as I went through my practice, how, I think the biggest takeaway, if, if I could sum it up to one lesson was like, just how much we get in our own way. So like Reiki, what Reiki's taught me over the years is that the less I get in the way, um, the more I can feel. And I really noticed this when I started working with people is, you know, they'd be on the massage table. And I, if I, if I was thinking about, oh, this is 
what I'm going to have for dinner or what am I going to do afterwards? Like I, I literally stopped feeling what was in the present moment. And, but then when I let that go, it was like taking a log out of our, out of a river and things just flowed. And I was feeling all sorts of things and seeing images. Um, and so it was really, it was so amazing to just be the observer in that space and witness what, whatever came into the room. Um, and so that, yeah, I think that was the biggest lesson that I had with, with that practice. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm taking all those lessons with me uh, into what I'm doing now, which is um, I, I work in this program called the Children's Wellness Program as a children's wellness therapist. Uh, it's working with um, non-Indigenous people and, and Indigenous people, but it's through a friendship center. And I, Susan, I don't know if you have an equivalent uh, to the friendship center in um, the U.S., but I would love to hear a little bit about that if you do have an equivalent. But um, yeah, we have these friendship centers all over Canada, um, and they're really they're really focused on on helping uh, urban Indigenous folks. Uh, so yeah, I work with families and children, um, mainly who have been impacted by uh, sexual abuse and acute and complex trauma, um, intergenerational trauma. So it's pretty intense work. Um, I've been doing it for about three and a half months now, so it's pretty, still pretty new to this, but I'm loving the challenge and I'm loving, you know, just how many modalities I can bring into it. Like they, they really welcome the energy work. So, you know, I wasn't able to do that in my previous practice when I started my practicum, which is fine. I, they, you know, they want more evidence-based uh, practices uh, or techniques. So, but yeah, the, the, um, the where I'm working now, they're just like, yeah, you know, you just do the somatic work, do the Reiki. And, and so, yeah, it, it's been welcomed and yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. So that's a little bit about um, my professional practice and how it's evolved. Andrew, what was your other question? I figured we'd, we'd get into this along throughout the episode, but just with, uh, with your relationship with Ray and, and how your discussions that you have, because I know you both communicate a lot about everything that we talk about on dualist unity, how that has sort of carried into your work and, and sort of finding, and this is for both of you in, in your day-to-day professional practices, finding that balance between like sort of validating and, and Susan, I just listened to your episode with Arjun on the principal podcast, sort of finding that balance between validating their experience and their idea of themselves and their identity and recognizing and, and knowing that it isn't the truth of what they are. Cause I can imagine in a professional setting, like Ray and I can kind of say whatever we want, cause we're just talking to each other, but it's a little bit different in a professional setting. And you do have to use taught methods in a way, or, or there is some rigidity to a degree. Um, so I would just love to hear, I guess, from both of you, whoever would like to go first, how you've been able to find that balance and what that's looked like and just sort of wherever you want to go with, with that question. I can go first if that's okay. And, and real quick, just Melissa, to answer your question about the friendship centers, we don't use that terminology. I'm not familiar with that, but I don't know most things. So it's very possible that those exist in the US and I'm just not familiar, but it sounds like we treat a very similar uh, client population. I, I typically don't work with kids or adolescents, but I work with a lot of adult survivors of either childhood sexual abuse or adult sexual abuse um, that, you know, as you know, carries a lot of challenges. So I love to chat with you about that maybe later. Um, but yeah, Andrew, to, to answer your question, 
I, <laughs> I've been struggling with that more, I think, since listening to the podcast, because I want to be super direct and blunt, like you're God and, and you are the universe experiencing itself. And I think I'd probably get fired as a therapist for, for some people, if I said it like that, but there's other ways in, and there's actually therapies that after starting to listen to the podcast, I started to make connection between these Mm, knowings, understandings, whatever you want to call it, and some therapeutic techniques that already exist. So there's one in particular called acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's all about living in line with your values, whatever they are, you get to decide despite your internal experience. So you can still do all of the things you want to do, even if you feel anxious, even if you feel terrified, even if you feel shame. So many of us, and I'm guilty of this too, we think, oh, I need to control these things and then I can live the life that I really want to live. But it's that that idea of control that's keeping you stuck in this hole that you've created basically of misery and suffering. And so there's a lot of overlap there. And, and this that treatment too talks about this idea of cognitive diffusion. So the idea of separating yourself from your thoughts, this idea that there's a awareness behind the thoughts. And so like I'm working with a client right now and we talk about his fake brain stories, how his fake brain stories tell him, you know, lies about his girlfriend or, you know, that pe other people are judging him. And just that term fake brain story has allowed him to... I don't just like open up this whole other world of like, oh, that's not really who I am. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not these judgments. And so that's just been really fun to like go a little bit deeper with clients in that regard. And you guys have helped me go deeper with that. It's This is, again, it's going to be hard to explain with words, but like I thought I understood some of these principles I, on one level I did. And like the Buddhist idea of like no self and interdependence um but then just something clicked when I started listening to this podcast and I'm like oh like that that's what it is like there there is no separate self like there is no suit there is a Susan like I understand I'm the ticket to this experience but that's not really who I am and it just it, it still blows my mind so yeah I I can get there at different levels with different clients so there's an art to knowing what at what level with which client you can get there I hope that made sense absolutely that made sense I think it's very interesting because you're dealing with a population that's a little bit older a little bit farther along in terms of ego development and so they have a bit more of a, of a capacity for reflection if you can just kind of shake off that feeling of being imprisoned right you can look at the prison and go oh okay let's think about this whereas with children especially children who have been traumatized I imagine it's a lot harder which is why Melissa specifically works with play therapy and in terms of symbolism I find that to be incredibly interesting but I imagine it's also very frustrating because you're not able to just deliver an insight directly as you would verbally with an adult. Melissa would you like to speak a little bit about how embodying an insight comes across in, in play therapy or some of the challenges that you faced since you started doing play therapy? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I just I wanted to say to Susan, yeah, it, you do have to, to kind of meet people where they're at, like you said, like it's, it, you can almost get a, get a sense of it within the first, I mean, sometimes it's within the first minute, you'll, you'll reach that brick wall and you're like, oh, okay, we can't, we can't go there. Um, there might be some really strong, you know, um, 
rigid worldviews or, or very strong identities that they're holding, um, which could be defense mechanisms. They actually needed them for survival. And so I've come to see that working with trauma is that, you know, okay, where, what is this defense, defense mechanism? And so when working with kids, it's, um, yeah, the, it's like, it, it is very interesting because similar to um, acceptance commitment therapy, um, it's like, yeah, there's lots of metaphors. So you're, you're watching the play, you're observing, what are the themes coming up? Um, what, what are they enacting here? What are the metaphors? Um, what are they processing? And it's very subjective. And because kids aren't necessarily like some of the, you know, some of my, uh, some of my nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, you know, they're getting into that. They're able to really articulate uh, what they're processing, what they're going through, their thoughts and feelings. But, you know, younger than that, I noticed that there's, it's really just, um, what are we observing through play? And then also, um, you're, it's the relationship that that's really what you're building safety and trust and, you're just attuning to their energy. And, um, you know, a lot of it is reflecting. So, you know, if a kid's playing with a car, it's like, you, you know, you're really engaging and you're just allowing them to feel seen and heard and you're being in that experience. And I think that's been the hardest thing with play therapy for me is just, sometimes you just kind of feel like you're just kind of repeating everything that's saying, but then when you, when you get along into it, it's like, no, I'm, I'm actually just being super present in what they're experiencing. And even though it does, I might just be saying, oh, the car is driving along. Like they're, they're like, they're able to reflect on what they're doing as well. So, and again, there's the, the attunement or the relationship piece, which is so important. Um, so yeah, those are some of the challenges, but uh, yeah, working with adults is, can be just as, just as challenging for sure. I just want to clarify. I, I was curious with play therapy. I'm not super familiar with play therapy and, and what it is and, and what, the purposes and what it actually looks like is, and I'm, so I'm curious along with that, is it utilized specifically for children or is it for everyone? And yeah, just like, yeah. I would love to hear a little bit more of background on play therapy specifically. That's a really good question. Um, cause sometimes I, I have parents who are just like, they're not even sure if play therapy is actually effective, but the purpose of play therapy is to communicate. This is how ch children communicate. Um, and play therapy can be used for adults as well. Like it's, it's incredible for, um, communicating feelings again, using metaphors, um, uh, and just being able to process things through that engagement uh, with another human being um, in a healthy way. So um, it can be done through sand tree work, uh, which is what I was trained to, to work with. So, you, you know, you have a sand tray and miniatures uh, and the, kid, the kids or adults. It's great for adults as well. You can ask them a question, for example you know, like, you know, show me what you did today or something along those lines. And so they take, um, you know, any of the miniatures off the wall and, and just place them, arrange them in this basically contained world, which is the sand tray. And again, because you're working with metaphors, it's incredible. Some of the things that come up, some of the, the, Im the images that arise. Um, I love art therapy. Uh, some of the, there's a exercise that I've been using lately, um, it's like the sighing exercise. So it's like we, we sigh three times or the client will sigh three times in a tired and frustrated sigh. And then they'll draw uh, like on the image, they'll have an, we'll have an outline of a human and they'll be, I'll ask them to draw um, using any colors they want uh, or no, no colors if they want, just draw where they felt that in their body. And then we do it again, three times angry sighs um, and then draw what they felt in their body. 
and then three times with hope uh, or possibility size. So it's really interesting what happens when, when you see these drawings and when we externalize or basically take those feelings so they can see them outside of themselves. Um, so that can be done in so many different ways, whether it's through sanitary work or um, through art therapy um, or just, yeah, doing crafts or playing. Um, we do a lot of outside work. So we do like, I guess what we call land-based therapy or just getting out in nature. Yeah, it might be learning about bugs or learning anything about trees. And yeah, it, it's it's exciting work because you can really basically just use your own creativity to, to explore oneself. That's really interesting. I have to wonder about the long term effect of, of that type of conversation, especially when you're when you're really, really young to learn to think symbolically, to learn to express yourself symbolically and to have somebody in your reality that's actually uh, having a relationship with you on that level. Somebody who's actually looking at the symbolism rather than just ignoring it and going, oh, they're just playing with trucks. Right. You're actually looking for that depth because you yourself are embodying depth. And so I have to wonder if that child 10, 20 years down the road in the same way that Susan, you had your awakening and then it kind of just faded off to the background. It was still there waiting for the right timing, waiting for the right opportunity or the, or the right mixture of, of uh, situations, let's just say, to arise. And I'm wondering if the insight that you're embodying right now in the childhood is later going to pop up in that same way. And that would make a lot of sense to me considering the conversation that we're having, the way that it's rippling throughout society. Again, even modalities like um, acceptance and commitment training. That's pretty common sense, except how you feel, keep moving forward. That's pretty much the, I would say the crux of play therapy too, right? If you're sad, just embody that in your play, show it, right? Express it, don't, don't resist it, you know, have an outlet for that. Another question I have, and this is something that makes me curious because what I like is that you said it's within their own little universe. It's within their own little world which is exactly what our ego is as we develop, as we start to grow up. And so all of our life becomes kind of play therapy in that we're playing make-believe. We've got our house and our kitchen and our roles and the people in our lives and all of that, and we're still defining ourselves. And so it's still the same game. It's still make-believe. And there's still symbolism in all of that, like in the uh, perception of lack. For example, if you need a bigger and bigger house or more and more cars or anything like that, like it's still symbolism. So I'm, I'm wondering, if more adults maybe could benefit from, from not play therapy, but just straight up play. What do you think, Melissa? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, play is just, play has actually been proven to improve our immune system, which totally makes sense because we're just being ourselves and we're, we're in the moment, you know, like it's very authentic and yeah, it's just maybe Susan, you could speak to that. Like, do you, when you work with your adults, do you um, incorporate play and what, what kind of benefits do you notice when you work with adults? Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it play, but now that we're talking about this, I encourage my clients to be really silly. So uh, I'm just thinking of a client who I was working with recently and, and he came in and he's like, you're going to be so proud of me. Uh, he's like, it didn't happen, but it almost did. He's like, I almost went skinny dipping in the ocean with my friends. He's like, I really wanted to do it. But the reason why we didn't was because there was a cop that was like walking the boardwalk or something. And I'm like, yes, like just living in the moment and getting rid of all inhibition. I mean, you, I'm not asking you to do something like super risky. That's going to get you hurt. But yeah, definitely that, that like child like energy. And I think especially for 
trauma survivors, whether kids or adults, any kind of therapy that helps people feel safe in their body is so important because trauma lives in the body very differently than really any other kind of experience. Um, and it's relived in the body differently. And so I think at least from the adults that I've worked with, they're terrified of just being with themselves because they don't know when the next intrusive thought is going to happen or when the next trigger is going to happen that's going to create this cascade of emotional response that they have the belief that, they, that they're not equipped to deal with. So then they turn to avoidance techniques and distraction techniques, and that can look like a host of different things, whether it's substance use or working 90 hours a week just to stay out of your mind and, and body. So yeah, any safe way to come back to the body and feel safe in the body, I think is so important. Yeah. With trauma, I'm curious, like how, what for Susan, I guess for to pass it over to you, what specifically, like, where do you go initially for someone who has such a bodily traumatic response? Like it's all in there. It's, it's almost like obviously mind and body, there's no disconnect there, but it's staying with them so severely that it's almost like you can't, it's, it's hard to like get through to, is it, do you start with, with questioning it? Cause I guess on top of that, there's all these assumptions that go along with all of the feelings that we feel like everything, all of our feelings just are, they're just this neutral sort of thing. And our thoughts about them sort of dictate how we feel about it and, and how we label how we feel and how we label it you know, a bad feeling or a good feeling. And when it's bad, we resist it and that keeps it around. And it, it's sort of this vicious cycle. Um, so for people who have those sort of severe, severely traumatic um, bodily responses, like where do you, where do you start with clients like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, honestly, I think the people who have the most severe bodily reaction probably aren't the ones that are coming to treatment, at least not for a while, because at least not the type of treatment that I do. Like I'm very upfront with folks in the beginning about what this treatment's going to look like. Like, I'm not just going to sit and talk with you about your week and like the, the daily stressors of the week. I don't believe that's how change happens. You have friends for that. You have family for that. Just talking to me isn't going to help. So I'm just really upfront in the beginning about how I think change happens and how I've seen it happen in clients. Um, I provide a lot of education about what trauma is, how it's stored in the body, why they're experiencing that big emotional response. And I found that just that education can be really validating and really helpful because a lot of clients will come in, especially when I worked at the VA, and they'll say, I'm going crazy. Like I'm losing my mind. I have no idea what's happening. And when you provide some context for what's happening, you can place it in something. You see them deflate a little bit like, okay, I'm not losing my mind. I'm just suffering from PTSD really bad. And I guess this is where like sometimes labels can be helpful, right? Like no thing's good or bad because it, it, at least with trauma, it allows them to have some kind of, it makes sense, I guess, of what's happening to them. Um, I usually incorporate some kind of mindfulness or meditative practice into all of the, the treatments that I do. And I might not call it that depending on who I'm working with and kind of where they're at on their journey. But um, 
yeah, slowly, gradually getting them comfortable being with themselves, being in their body. And usually it's a very gradual experience. Um, but let's say someone was in, a, I don't know, like a horrific car accident and they're terrified of driving. Like part of treatment is getting them back in the car again. And I'm going to be very upfront with them about that from the beginning. So like gradual steps to get them there. But then I think there's other ways to help them feel more comfortable in their body. Like you said, mind and body, it's, there's no distinction, but especially with survivors of interpersonal trauma, like sexual assault, there's so much unjustified shame and guilt that's keeping those feelings around. And there's lots of reasons for that. We can talk about that more if you want, but you can kind of start with the belief aspect of it and break down those beliefs that the trauma was their fault. And then that has kind of the same effect on the bodily reaction. Like once you realize there's nothing I could have done, this horrible thing happened because it happened, um, then the bodily response starts to dissipate as well. Absolutely, that's really interesting. We're gonna pass this back to Melissa for a quick second because of her experience with Reiki specifically, because I find the same thing in dealing with life coaching clients that sometimes it's just too deep. It's just buried too deep and you can't get to it through asking questions. You can't get through it to it through just saying like, you're safe here, you're gonna be okay. Whereas with Reiki and, and Melissa actually trained me on, on how to do Reiki. There are moments where you can feel that person's body just relax in the same way you can feel their mind relax when you're talking to them sometimes. And I think it's just because they're not, they don't feel alone in it. Like there's suddenly this, this helping hand that's there. It's not doing anything, but to them it is. And I think that maybe helps them process some things. I know Melissa, in your experience with Reiki, you would often talk about um, emotional releases. Uh, maybe you'd like to describe a little bit of what that was like to deal with and how you would, uh, how you would help people go through that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was um, a few, like, it didn't happen every time, but occasionally you would have um, a pretty intense trauma release, I guess is the only way I could really describe it since we're talking about trauma. Um, and it would, it's sort of like it would just bubble to the surface. And there was a few times, um, yeah, it was almost like I had to hold the person so they weren't, you know, kind of shuffling off the table, but also, you know, asking them, like, are you, are you okay? Do you want to stop? Like, and, and most of the time it was like, I don't know if I had anyone say, no, I just want to stop. Usually they, they continued on, but it was, um, it, it was just intense. A lot of tears, uh, just a very big emotional release. And yeah, it was almost like that just needed to be felt in the body. Like it was, it's coming from a different part of the brain. It's not the cognitive part. It's not, it's, it's, it's coming from a pretty deep place where the trauma, like you said, Susan, where the trauma was stored in the body. Um, and so, yeah, you're just witnessing it. You're just holding space for them to experience that. And because I know you've been on this path a long time, we've known each other for 18 years and that you've been on a long journey of working on yourself, getting yourself out of the way. Uh, I know a lot of people here don't know the details of your own story of the life that you grew up in or, or the fact that you left that life in a very opposite direction and faced quite a bit of headwind in doing that um, through facing all that through letting go of yourself to greater and greater degree, letting go of your assumptions, more importantly, and your limitations, whether or not you think that you're qualified to do is, do something or not, whether or not you feel like an imposter sitting there. Do you find that as you've progressed in not just Reiki, but let's just say interactions with people, whether it's as a counselor now or a Reiki practitioner before, that it's your level of self-faith 
that eases those restrictions or eases that discomfort between you and the other person that the more you have faith in yourself, the more likely it is that they're going to relax a bit more around you? Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. Self, self-faith, is that what you said? Yeah, for sure. Like letting go of self-doubt. Um, and I think embracing courage, absolutely embracing courage. And I, I try to, I do my best to bring that to my clients too, because, um, you know, it does, you know, no matter what you've faced in your life, there's always tools of strength. There's always things that we can pull from. Like we've got that strength within us. We've got resiliency. Um, even if we don't think we do, like we, we have that It's part of consciousness. It's like, it's an innate thing. Uh, so I think it's just sort of a remembering. Um, yeah, I think that's what I would say about that. That's what I said. I would say it's a remembering that's shared. I find yeah. that to be a really interesting phenomenon that when I remember who I am, it becomes almost easier for everybody around me to remember who they are. And it's just because I'm not, I'm not pulling or pushing. I'm not adding that conflict to reality. And so suddenly the, the, the ripples subside and we're able to actually see the reflection in the pond, right? Whereas the rest of the time, it's all chaos. All we see is distortion. All we see is confusion. And, and so that's why we're always pushing and pulling on one another, trying to get our own way and feel better. So I find that to be incredibly interesting. Susan, I do want to ask you one more question in regards to your own journey, because I know talking to Melissa, as we've explored the role of identity and the fact that the majority of our structures are based on identity being valuable and important and necessary. As you've questioned that in your own life, have you noticed some professional blowbacks some people who are in your industry who necessarily don't, don't agree with your point of view and what has been the response? That's a really good question. Um, I don't talk about this with everyone. Um, there's honestly even some fear of being on this podcast and saying some of the things that I'm saying, but I'm also at this point where I'm like, fuck it. Like what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, I'm so certain of this that it almost doesn't matter anymore. Uh, I, I guess it is creating a little bit of, I don't know if chaos is the right word, but um, there was a time when I thought at least in my current academic position, like, oh, I'm going to be here for 30 years. This is going to be my be all end all job. And now I'm like, nope, like this ain't it. Um, I don't know what, what it is, but um, this isn't going to be it forever. So um, it, if I talked about this, I, there's a reason why I'm not talking about it with certain people, because I know I would get blowback at a hundred percent. I feel lucky in the private practice that I work at my director I've had some of these conversations with him. He's like, oh yeah, I know I'm God. Like we're all God. So we're like, we're kind of on, on the same path. Um, did that answer your question? <laughs> Absolutely, it did. Absolutely. It's good to know that like yourself and Melissa, there are people out there that are doing their own journeys. They are working on themselves. And because that always inevitably ends up back in the moment, looking at who you think you are, there is that bridge that we're able to build. But it's taken so very long for that mentality to kind of seep its way into the structure because it was based on the opposite mentality. And so the fact that you have somebody in your department that knows their God, that's incredibly inspiring. The fact that you both are in, an, in the mental health industry and know your God is incredibly inspiring because that is the change that's happening. And what's funny is that I bet both of you going along your journeys, just trying to do the best you can, don't feel like you're a part of this massive larger picture 
you're just slugging it out, trying to get through the journey and, and, and lower the amount of resistance that you experience, which has been the point for everybody in history. I always find it funny. We, we idolize people like they were different somehow than us, but they were just slugging it out, doing the best they could, not knowing we were going to look back at them at one point and go, do you see what they did? Right? And the more that they were involved with what they did, the more we did that, which I always find really interesting. So I just wanted to say quickly, because I know we're going into the last half hour-ish here of the, of the roundtable, that what you both do, not in your industry, but to yourself, in yourself, as reality, is all we need. That is all the change we need in the mental health industry. Because in all the years that I went to therapists and all the years that I was looking for help, the one thing I lacked was somebody with awareness. I always found somebody who wanted to just stick a label on me, give me a medication and send me on my way. It was, it was a mechanic job. It was just, here's the part, off you go. And that never helped. It never helped me. It drove me farther and farther to the edge. And it wasn't until I gave up on the mental health industry entirely that I ran across just a regular human being who said, why don't you think about life anymore? And he cared. And that's what cracked it for me. That was it. It was an honest to God question about what do you think? Not what's wrong with you, right? Not, not why do you think that because of all this past trauma, but what do you want to think right now? With honest interest, Andrew and I talked about this in a previous episode, and I know Melissa and I have talked about it for years, that the most important question we can ask one another and one that we never take seriously, how are you? Because it means something, but we don't treat it like it means something. And so we go through our life feeling disconnected, like nobody really cares. Everybody's asking how I am and nobody's stopping to listen, right? Because they're too busy focused on themselves. And so it's encouraging to me to know that you're both healing yourself and as a result, creating healing within the whole. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I am, in my opinion, a so much better therapist since walking this path, having this awareness. I think back to when I first started and I was so in my head thinking like that what what is the next thing that I need to say and not wanting to piss off the client and so fragilizing them and tiptoeing around things and now and and Melissa you spoke to this earlier I was going to comment on that it's such a gift to just be in a room with someone and just be and just be present and it's not that my mind is blank, but it's like people can pick up when you're really listening, when you're just there. And I truly believe there is something healing just in that. I think especially in our culture and society where everyone is doing seven things at once and, and people just aren't being or listening to others. So yeah, it's it's just, it's made me slow down and just, it, it's just allowed me to be so much more present with people I know my clients pick up on that. And I think a lot of them, that's what they're yearning for. Yeah, absolutely. And Melissa, I'm going to toss this back to you. And sorry, Andrew, I keep cutting you off. I know you have something to say. I just wanted to mention quickly, uh, Melissa, going through school, I know that at one point you, when I first met you, you were in your master's program. And then because you were going through your own personal growth journey, because we ran off and lived in the rainforest for eight months, and we pretty much just abandoned everything, you left school. And you left school because it was stressful, because you didn't see the point of where you were going and all of that. And then as you've gotten older and you've worked on yourself, you're finding, or at least that you have found, a difference in your performance, not just in school, but in, in, in your work as well. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, the, notice, the differences that you've noticed just in your interactions compared to when you and I first met, where your priorities were a little different. 
Yeah, actually, I, I was just, when you were saying that, Susan, I was like, yeah, so, so true. Like, uh, I've had that experience too, where like, um, in graduate school, they're like, well, what modality are you going to be like, what are you going to focus on? And they really wanted you to like hone in on what's your, what's your area of expertise or whatever. And, and it's like, what I, I don't really want to like, oh, okay, well, sure. I guess I can kind of like hone in on that. And I can say like what modalities I resonate with, but you know, at the end of the day, like, it's really that connection, that, that, that connection you have with another human being, like, are you seeing that? It's like the, the namaste, I see the you within me and the me within you. I'm probably saying that wrong. I always do, but you get the idea, right? Like you see that person that is you and they see, hopefully they can feel that as well. Um, and so there is that, that to me is, should be the crux, the cornerstone of the work that we do. Um, and then techniques should be, you know, that should be sort of second to what we do. I, that's just my opinion. I, I mean, there's always, there, I, I don't think that you can't just go buy a book and, and think that that's what counseling is because it doesn't work like that. Um, so yeah, that's my take on that. That's a good take. And I just want to go back to the question that I'd asked you quickly because I know you, we've talked numerous times over the last several years where you, where you were finishing your master's and you have commented, I'm such a better student now. You've honestly, I mean, not, not to say that you've bragged about it, but you've just looked at your performance as a student and went, wow, I'm so much better than I used to be. And it's because I'm not thinking about myself as much because I'm not as afraid because I have more self-faith, right? Yeah. So I find it very interesting that if they were to look at that in academia, if they were to actually look at that process of growth and include it in your education, you would actually be able to learn more about self-awareness from the process of going through the, the curriculum, but they don't. Right. They ask you to journal here and there, but they're not teaching self-awareness. And do you think that's something, Melissa, just to start with you, that, that we can teach in school? Do you think awareness is something that we could find a curriculum to encourage? Uh, yuck. That immediately is when you said that, I was like, no, I don't think that's I think that they do. Like my program really tried to, you know, they get you doing reflective um, journaling and, you know, they, they encourage it in different ways. Um, but, yeah, no, I think it's really sometimes it just comes through going through some really hard shit and going through trauma. And I think that everybody finds it in their own way, but um, you know, like Susan, you came to it in your own way, Andrew, you came to it in your own way, Ray, you and myself, like we've always had our own journeys, but they've all been very unique. And we somehow find, found that we access that part of ourselves. And, you know, you kind of have to keep remembering, right. Sometimes you feel like you, you've forgotten it, but um, then you, you always kind of come back to it if you choose to. Right. Um, and so there's different things. Like I really love growth mindset, you know, the, this idea that um, if we're not comparing ourselves to others and we're not, you know, kind of really doing what the school system does, like kind of always comparing ourselves to other people to see how we can be a success. And we're just doing it for the sake of learning. Um, that makes a huge difference. And then we can start to promote self-awareness um, and prioritize that. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. And I think, so I was curious with, you know, the idea of sort of along these lines, the idea of labels and trauma always being thought of as this terrible thing that everyone goes through. And we were talking about this a couple episodes ago and how it seems like, and I'm honestly not super familiar with therapy and, and the process of it and how it works. I've, I've never gone to therapy. I haven't obviously studied it. I'm not a therapist, but 
it seems like, at least from my limited understanding, that people see a problem in the person or they're trying to figure out what's wrong with them and then trying to sort of like fix it is like the the taught method. And so I've I've been able to see and not to, you know, belittle trauma in any way, but I see that it's a lot of times incredibly necessary and entirely necessary to wake up eventually and see the truth of what you actually are. So many people who who recognize that have been through some level of trauma, some level of suffering. So for for both of you, I guess we can start with Susan. How have you seen a shift in that and and maybe recognizing that the trauma isn't necessarily this thing that is wrong with them and, and you got to fix them because now they're broken and you got to like work on this thing because you have this label that you've placed on them. And now you have this process that you work towards fixing them instead seeing it as just a, just process, just part of their journey and something that they can actually learn from. Have you seen since seeing more of the truth of, of what you are, have you seen a shift in that mentality of, of thinking of it less so as you know, this person's broken and I got to fix them to, I see what they truly are. Let's see if we can help them recognize the truth of what they are beyond all of those labels. Yeah. There's so much to unpack there. I don't know where to start. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, at least my training specifically wasn't a very much a medical model, like a pathological model. People have this disorder, this pathology, and this treatment will fix them. And I always had a problem with that. Um, like, no, this is an experience that someone had, and it, they might actually grow from it. And they do. And, and what you're speaking to is actually why I find working with trauma clients so rewarding. And I'm not trying to like glorify trauma, obviously, in any way. But people will ask me, like, how is it that you can hear these stories of abuse and assaults and and not not have it affect you and it's it's because I, I I see the growth like I know what's possible um and I've had so many clients say like even if it was possible even if there was a magic pill that they could take that would take the trauma memories away they would choose not to because after going through the process they recognize that they wouldn't be who they are today without going through that experience so many trauma survivors I've worked with are some of the, like, like you mentioned, like wisest, most empathic people I've ever met because there's a duality to it, right? Like this horrible terror, fear-filled event. Then the other side of that is like this deep empathy for everything that is. And so I don't know how it happens because it happens differently with each client, but like so many people get to that place, that recognition of this this horrible thing happened to me because it happened and now I am so much wiser and aware because of it and I I I wouldn't while I wouldn't wish that experience necessarily on other people I there's there's almost like an appreciation for it happening because of how much it changed their their mindset toward everything it's it's so powerful yeah that is that is awesome to hear because that's been more so again though I don't have a lot of experience with understandings of therapy like that's how I've seen it and I've I've been just in the last few weeks seeing sort of trauma in a, in a different light and just you know it always comes back to your own experience and seeing everything I've been through and how it was entirely necessary to being where I'm at now and I wouldn't have gone 
you know, woken up if I hadn't experienced all of those things. So as much as, you know, we can look back and be like, oh, that, that was a bad experience. That was, that was a tough thing. That was traumatic, whatever. It's like, if it, if it led to where you're at now, when you're at a state of peace, at a state of freedom, is it still bad? Like it, it's hard to say when you see that there's no disconnect and it was, it was a part of that process. So Melissa, to pass it over to you, have, have you seen similar sorts of, of recognitions in seeing your clients as less so of, you know, broken pieces that you're trying to fix and more so just people who have been through process and have the potential to recognize more clearly the truth of what they are through that, not, not even despite that, but because of it, almost it, it brings them closer to that recognition since they did have that experience and it, it drives more, you know, empathy and, and a clear recognition of, of the truth of what they really are. Yeah. Like some, some clients are in that place where they can start to, to see those lessons or the change or, you know, and, and I always like to introduce that, you know, like, how have you changed since this, or, you know, what have you learned? Um, that may not always be an appropriate question to ask it. Like you have to kind of see where the client's at. Um, if they're still in the chaos, then it's really just like, you're just there to witness what, what they're going through and just hold space for them and just be a safe place and person for them. Uh, cause some, some of these folks just don't have any healthy relationships in their, in their circles. So, um, you know, like I, I remember looking back in, in my life to uh, a teacher, my grade two teacher, and she was just the most incredible person. And I don't necessarily remember the things she said to me, but it was the way she made me feel. And so I guess going back to that body feeling, that body awareness, it was like, she was a safe person. I loved her, you know, and, and she really showed all the students her, you know, that love, that connection. And, um, and so I think that, yeah, that, that again, it goes back to the relationship piece and, um, yeah, just kind of meeting people where they're at. And I'm not sure if I answered your question, but <laughs> absolutely. And, and it, it just goes back to how clear, I think we were talking about this in a recent episode and Ray mentioned how it's funny how the teachers, the people like most were usually just just chill people. And it's funny how like that bar is, is sort of like so low for, <laughs> for elementary, middle high school teachers that like the ones we loved so much and made us feel the best and, and allowed us to grow so much within ourselves were just the ones that were kind of chill. And that's about it because it's less so about the, the words, the, the teachings, it's more so about how you're embodying it and, and where, what state of awareness you're at in the situation. And I think both of you have, have expressed that through recognizing more clearly within yourself, what you truly are, it's, it's led to so much more growth. And it's not necessarily that you've learned more or recognize more within the realm of your teachings, but it's just within yourself. And, and that has more clearly been expressed. And therefore people resonate with that because there's so much more communication that, that goes on between human beings between semblances of awareness than language. It, and there it's like language is such a limited aspect of that. And even with all of the therapies you were talking about before, I was, I was hearing those and just thinking, oh, this is just a way of expression that is nonverbal, which is significantly easier for so many people. Because as we all know, talking about this stuff, using words could be kind of a pain in the ass sometimes. So sometimes it's just easier to express it via art or, or play or 
poetry or whatever it may be. But I obviously we've chosen language and, and words to be the primary source, and but it can be a, a battle at times. But it's it's definitely fun. Um, so yeah, I appreciate both the both of your responses with that, and it's really cool to see in this realm people recognizing this and seeing the the payoffs to the recognitions. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting that what we're really talking about is just establishing a foundation. Like we're, we're really just talking about being firmly rooted in reality and then using concepts from there, as opposed to just living in the concept tree, never touching the ground. Right. And that that's really it. And that's where almost everything fails. Government, mental health, hospitals, education system. It's all, it all becomes a system based on a structure, based on rules, and there's no awareness in it which is why it can't change, right? It can't shift according to the needs of the students. It can't shift according to the needs or the mentality of, of, of these new generations because it's based on structure, right? But the alternative is what? That we go back to the master-pupil relationship or the alternative is what in terms of mental health that we go back to not being non-accredited, right? How do you guarantee you're gonna get good, good help? How do you know you're not dealing with somebody who's totally egotistical, which means that we have to start developing more sensitivity so now we're talking about an entirely different education system that's entirely based on empathy, sensitivity, and getting out of your way and seeing what's actually there. And if we did that early on, all the grades afterwards would start to change. But we start with concepts. Concepts are where it's at. Let's drill this little, this little dude with as many concepts as we can so that way by the time he's able to walk, he's on his way to work, right? And that's the problem is that we want them to be useful instead of just being expressing life right and i wanted to return quickly to something melissa said before we wrap up here because i enjoyed the wording that our job is to witness i think that they, that is our job in general because there's no separation so when you're with someone as long as your ego and your division isn't in the way all you've done is add a charge to their potential you have shared your potential with them and allowed them to use it in a conversation however you'd like to say it but you are adding to their, to their strength by being strong. That in itself is the impact. That's all it is. And this is what makes me wonder about, you know, saints and enlightened beings and all of that, where people who went and met them said straight up, it feels totally different around them. It feels like you're in a different world. And it's because it does, because they don't live in the ego. They don't live in that structure, right? And so you get there and it's like all the weight's gone. And then you're like, how do I get this? It's like, ah, you're asking about yourself. You've lost it, right? And that's, that's the whole point. So it has to be embodied in order for us to communicate the point or the strength of that mentality. We can't just talk about it. And I say that fully aware of the fact that I do a weekly podcast. I am aware that I talk about it a lot for sure, because to some degree, I, I find words and concepts to be a lot like a combination safe. Everybody is a different safe everybody has a different combination. And if you can just find the right combination of concepts that tickles or, or snaps an insight out, that's it, it's on them, right? But it's giving them that exposure to those concepts. It's giving them that exposure to that different cerebral environment so they can experience something else because I can't take you across the world to some tropical destination where you're gonna experience nothing but change and maybe have an insight. But I can make you question everything you think is real, which is gonna change your environment, which is gonna cause an insight, right? So. As much as it's being yourself, that's true for everything because it's all you. It's all you. And I love the fact that what you two do, not, not what you do by design or, or by your, your vocation, but as a result of who you are, 
is you're just willing to serve. That's what it is. You're willing to just sit there and allow that person to spin through and allow that person the room that they need. That is the only help that we can offer. Anything other than that is self-importance. Anything other than that is superiority. We're coming from on high. I know what's best for you. I'm not in your life. I'm not in your shoes. You are. You know what you can do differently. You know what you're avoiding. I'm not going to be able to tell you that. And I know from all the life coaching clients that I've had that often that's what people are asking for. I had one client who came in and he was always stressed out, worked all the time. And because he worked all the time, longer and longer hours, he was taking the time to have a drink on the way to work, on a drink on the way home. And then when he'd get home, his family would be there and he'd reach for the bottle and he'd start drinking more to get rid of the stress. And so I recommended that he learn to take five minutes on the way to work to just sit, just sit on a bench somewhere. Rather than, you know, go get a drink, just sit on a bench, have some time to yourself so that you're not running to work on the same mentality. When you're done work, take five minutes, sit somewhere, just, 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 just to sit. And his response was, can't you give me a mantra or, or some strategy that's going to fix this for me? And my response is, I'm not a pharmacy. That's not how this works. Like, if you want to just pad the problem, if you want to just ignore the problem, sure, that's what you're doing now. Right? But if you want to deal with the problem, it has to come from you. It has to come from you. It has to be your priority. You have to be willing to climb uphill through mud by yourself. And that's when the helping hands starts. That's when you can start recognizing those who have already done that. Right? But until then, you're just complaining about it. Somebody help me. Drag me up the hill. Right? But that will never work. You, you might get halfway up because of somebody's help and then slide all the way back down because you didn't do the work yourself. So I appreciate the ripples that you are both creating. Uh, we're going to wrap up here shortly, but I'm going to pass it back to Andrew because I'm sure he has another couple of questions and I always tend to ramble for a while. Andrew? Yes, I, uh, I do have a few more written down. I actually, so I had one specifically sort of like off the, the topic of what we've been talking about specifically um, that I wanted to get in from uh, Susan, you were talking about on Arjun's podcast, on the principal podcast. And uh, early on, I think you're talking about the idea of treating others how you want to be treated. And I, I wanted to dive into this a little bit because I think there's some some depth to it. And and you were talking about how everyone always says, like, treat others how you would like to be treated. But what if, because we're all different, like, we don't always necessarily want to be treated in the same way. And I think it's like a very reasonable response or like questioning of that thing. Cause like everyone just assumes that to be the way it is. And that's what we're always doing. It's just questioning. Like, is that actually the only way that it could be? And, and so I was curious, like, is that like, where does the responsibility lie within that versus the sensitivity to it? Like, is it our responsibility, me versus someone else? Like, I know my experience. I know how I would like to be treated. I don't necessarily know how they would like to be treated. So what I know is how I would like to be treated. So I'll treat them how I would like to be treated versus having, and, and I think presence comes into this because it builds some sensitivity to being like, oh, I see a difference, you know, between us. We're not necessarily the same. We're the same, but like different, not, not divided, but different. And so with the sensitivity, you may have that sensitivity to recognize that, um, I don't necessarily have a question with this, but I'm just curious, like if I wanted to talk about it, I just wanted to bring it up because I think there's some, some layers to it. And just the statement, like treat others, how you would like to be treated, I guess, starting with Susan, if, if you have other thoughts about it, or if, if you have, 
thoughts about the responsibility for the person treating the other person versus that aspect of the sensitivity, or if you've found there to be a, a better sort of phrase to use going into that, uh, because I know last episode, uh, Ray and I were talking with, with Nick a lot about, uh, personal responsibility and radical acceptance and all of that. And, and so it was just top of mind. So it piqued my interest when I, when I got it, but I'm curious, um, just about your, your thoughts on that statement. And, and if you think there's a better way of, of going about it, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know if I know of a better way. Maybe I do. We'll see what comes out, but, um, I think it's just a, a phrase that has always interested me and bothered me a little bit like treat others how you want to be treated. And that's very egotistical, right? Like I appreciate very direct communication that others might judge to be abrasive um, where other people might appreciate a, a different kind of communication. But I, I think I'm picking up with you, what you're putting down with the, like where does the responsibility lie? Uh, like at the end of the day, let's say, someone treats me in a way that I don't deem acceptable or whatever, it's still on me to manage my reaction to that. Um, people can talk to me however they want to talk to me, treat me however they want to treat me. And I, I control my reaction to that um, and how I want to proceed. So I think the responsibility always still lies in the person, but I do think there is Mm, I don't know if danger is the right word, but maybe some kind of danger in assuming that because you want to be treated in a certain way that other people are going to appreciate that as well. Um, because then I think that can backfire and someone might have a different reaction. And then you're like, but wait a minute, I like, I, I like it this way. Why don't you? And then that can create some, I don't know, some stuff. But yeah, I think if I don't know if I'm answering your question right with the responsibility, but I think that always lies with you. People can treat you like shit and you don't have to react and you can then make a choice to not interact with them or, or whatever that might be. Does that answer your question at all? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's perfect because there was no question, really. I just wanted to, to hear more more of your thoughts on it. But yeah, to to uh, I guess to pass it over to Melissa as well, kind of just along the same lines when it comes to the personal responsibility and, and treating others, I guess, sort of just similarly, if you have anything to add to, to Susan's response, I feel like that was pretty spot on that while it is at the end of the day, like our responsibility for our reality in the moment, like our experience is ours. It's always our responsibility. There can be sensitivity built through actually being there with the person as opposed to just being like, treat others how you want to be treated. This is how I like to be treated. I'm going to treat everyone like this. And that's, that's it. And I'll be all no questions asked. It's like, there's nuance to everything. There's gray area to everything. So, so with that in, I guess, Melissa, with your relationships, with your, with your clients, finding that sensitivity, have you been able to find, I guess, along the same lines, but a little bit of a different question with being more present with people, more sensitivity to how you take the conversation and, and interact with, with clients or just in general relationships that, that you have with people. Yeah. Like Susan said, sometimes it's always, yeah, it, there is that responsibility factor and that lies, you know, with each one of us. Um, so, and I know Ray and I have talked about this at length about what our intention is. It's like, if I'm, if I'm having a conversation with you, Andrew, and, and I'm like, you know, being all judgy and stuff, you're probably going to pick up on that, right? Like if, you know, if you're, if you're aware. And so 
which you are, <laughs> but I think that like, we have to be aware of our, our, our intentions. So, so like if I'm judging a client or having assumptions about them or a bias, they are on some level going to pick that up. Um, you know, so I, I really try to keep, keep that in check. Like when things come up or I have an assumption about someone, um, yeah, I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm always kind of keeping that, you know, I, I'm aware of that. Right. I try to do my best. Um, none of us are perfect, but I do my best in trying to be aware of any assumptions that I might be holding of people and what my intention is. Like, um, am I being as open as I possibly can? Um, you know, like I, I do have, like, I know we touched on this a little bit with labels. You know, I struggle with that. Um, you know, the most recent one I'm struggling with is ADHD and I'm, I'm trying to work through some of my um, challenges with that and, you know, how it arises and on all of this stuff. But yeah, so I just, I kind of check myself and I'm aware of my intentions. And um, while I can't always, I can't control how the other person is going to receive me. Um, I just do my best. And I just try, I do, I, I come from that place where I'm just being myself. And sometimes like everyone else, I get, I get nervous in a session or I'm just like, start kind of feeling all fumbly and where, where am I going with this? Why am I, I can feel it in my body. And so I just come back to my breath and again, it's intention, right? Like I, that's what I, I come back to is what is my intention here? Yeah. And it's self-correcting. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing is that you respond, you get some backlash. If you're aware, you realize where that backlash is coming from. Cause it's never really the question of, you know, treating somebody the way I want to be treated, which me, which version of me, which mentality am I in at the time? Because that's the sensitivity part, right? When we meet somebody who's judgmental, if you can recognize you in there, in that mentality, you're going to act accordingly. If you can't, you're going to act from the mentality that you're in. That's the point, right? Is treat others as you would treat yourself or, or love others as yourself. It's because it's the same thing. They're the very same thing. Sensitivity gives us the capacity to relate, gives us the capacity to communicate on a level that's beyond verbal. There's no other way to, to, to really discuss it because at the moment, science isn't even trying to quantify that effect. But there will be a time when we're going to start recognizing that our mentality, our state of mind has an impact on, on how we change the world. This is something that David Hawkins was talking about in Power Versus Force, and we've talked about that numerous times. I know Melissa's very familiar with that work as well, but it really just comes back down to how much division do you embody? And if you're embodying less, then you are a wave of unification. You're a wave of unity all you need to do. So on that note, I just want to say thank you again to both of you for joining us. Melissa, obviously I see you every day. So I really appreciate you coming here on the podcast to have a conversation with us. I know Melissa is going to be joining us at the retreat in November. If anybody would like to talk to her in person there, you are more than welcome to join us. You can get tickets at dualisticunity.com. Susan, I really appreciate you joining us today. I look forward to having you on the show more often. As we get into season four, I'd like to invite you back on the show for another round table, maybe even just a standalone guest spot, because there's a lot of insight that you have to share. There's a lot of things that you're going through in your own journey. And I know our audience would love to hear more from you. And uh, to anybody who's listening, of course, you can occasionally find Susan on our group chats, which you can find on Patreon as well. Andrew, do you have anything to say before we wrap up? Just a ton of appreciation for both of you coming on today. I really, really appreciated this conversation. Like I had a lot of questions about, you know, the, the realms that you two both practice in that I have very little understanding or 
yeah, basically just understanding of, and especially when it comes to trauma and like bodily response, like I especially really, really enjoyed that part. And I think a lot of people will really enjoy that part of this podcast because it's, yeah, something that we haven't necessarily delved into a ton, I feel like. Um, so it was really cool to have both of you on to, to discuss all the insights that you're experiencing. And I know we talked a lot about your, your professional lives and, and the impacts there. I would love to, in the future, talk about more of your personal lives and, and experiences. So I I'm looking forward to speaking with you both more and yeah, just thank you very much for coming on and, and sharing this time with us. Thank you both. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was really enjoyable. I, I really enjoyed uh, learning more about you, Susan, and just having this conversation. And um, yeah, and Andrew and Ray, like, I, I'm, I'm sure I mentioned this to you before, but I, uh, and I'm sure other people would, would second this, but I think it's so amazing how you have created this, I'm going to call it a hub, because it feels like a hub. It, and it, it just feels like a magnetic force you're creating, um, you know, the, the responses you're getting from your audience and, you know, just how other people are waking up and they're being drawn to you. So, I mean, there is something significant there and yeah, just so grateful that you've created this space for people. Just keep going. Love it. <laughs> yeah. I just want to echo that as well. A magnet. That's such a good way to describe you both. Um, I know you're not like trying to change lives and teach things, but uh, my life has drastically changed since being exposed to all of this. So I have so much love and appreciation for you both. So thank you for having me on. Likewise, it's been a pleasure having you here. We couldn't do it without you because of course you're us. So we really appreciate the chance to witness each other's journey in this conversation. And I would like to say thank you one more time, actually specifically for the discussion regarding trauma and PTSD and whatnot, because while Andrew and I will skirt around those topics, we do so very carefully because we are not in your industry, because there is a dominant mentality that says, where's your diploma? You don't know what you're talking about. And so I really appreciate the fact that you came onto the show, bringing your credentials, bringing your education and your experience, and basically just said, all of that didn't lead me to what is now my awareness. I use it, but the awareness is the foundation. So I really appreciate you communicating that to everybody who's listening. Thank you so much for joining us. The next roundtable is, of course, next month. Next week is going to be the next podcast episode and another group on Saturday. If you can join us on Patreon, we'd love to see you there. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks.